outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, your guide to the fundamentals of better deer hunting. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel for the stand, saddle, or blind. First Light, go further, stay longer. And now, your host, Tony Peterson. Hey everyone, welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. I'm your host, Tony Peterson, and this episode is all about how tough whitetails really are. Take a look outside right now. Maybe you live in a place like I live in and it's miserable and stupid outside and you realize people probably shouldn't live here. Maybe you think, like for some reason a lot of Wyoming residents do, that the place you live makes you tough. You know, the winter's hard in you and you know, you and your people. And well, you know, the badassery comes oozing out in everything you do, from flossing with a chainsaw to cattle roping bull moose in your spare time. Sure, you're kinda tough but not as tough as your average one and a half year old six pointer. Them's the brakes, my friends. And that's what this episode is actually really all about. If you head on down to the local watering hole where Garth Brooks is still playing on the jukebox and the crowd leans heavily toward long necks and not necessarily drinks like Cosmos or chocolate martinis, you probably don't have to look too hard to find some dude who thinks he's pretty tough. There's one in every bar, I guess. And I'll bet that hypothetical but also very real archetype of a person, if you were to switch the dusty TV on and turn it to some random UFC event, I bet you'd hear from them stories about how the competitors weren't really that tough and your new bar friend could probably take them in a no-rules bare-knuckle brawl in the back alley amongst the dumpsters and the cigarette butts. I'm sure the tough guy would tell you, you know, over the drone, a manicured cowboy hat wearing fellas singing 
I don't know, dirt road songs and short shorts and a life they probably never have seen and surely can't see from their beachfront place in Malibu, that toughness doesn't come from earning no stupid belt or having a bunch of rules so that no one really gets hurt. It comes from the heart, he'd say. Or, I don't know, growing up with 12 older brothers and a drunk for a dad or whatever. But the truth is that sitting on a bar stool in a place like Newell, South Dakota, telling people how tough you are is a far cry from stepping into that octagon and proving it against someone who has trained for a decade or two on how to fold people into neat little packages of pain and sadness or strike them from their calves to their skull with a wild repertoire of practice elbows, punches, and kicks. It's not the same thing, and everybody knows it. Kind of like how when you occasionally get a living, wild animal in your hands that doesn't want to be there, and you can just feel the raw like power in them. Many folks have taken a beating from turkey wings after they've dumped them with a load of fours in the spring, or a few people have taken spurs to the hands or the neck or the face. Animals are strong, generally, but some animals are just tough, real tough. Not sit at the bar and not prove it tough, but tough. Anybody who's hunted squirrels knows they're tough. The cling to life aspect of squirrels is real and will show itself if you hunt them enough. Rabbits, on the other hand, not that tough. They're like the clueless city dweller who instantly gets bit by the first zombies in an outbreak. Just not smart enough for a long life and just not tough. Rough grouse are like that too. They catch a single BB from your shotgun pattern, they're coming down. Not a rooster though. Pheasants are tough. You knock them down, they just run and hide. Their will to live is impressive. Uh, Take antelope. Not so much. Not so tough. I actually kind of don't think elk are that tough either, but I don't have enough experience to make that call, so I could be way off base on that one. And of course, those whitetails we love so much, they are, as Mark would probably put it, tough some bitches. And they are. The second deer I ever shot was a button buck on a late September morning. I actually gut shot him twice and had to cut his throat when we blood trailed him to his bed, where he was very much alive. Now, I don't know if you know much about button bucks in September, but they aren't very big. Now, I also don't know if you know anything about the old-style broadheads like bear razorheads or zwickies, but they were big and covered in a lot of cutting surface. And the fact that he took one through himself broadside and one down through his back and still had the grit to go and bed down and be alive when we got there tells you something. And it was ugly. That was an ugly encounter that stuck with me. As a hunter, I did a terrible job, and that left a mark. But so did that deer's toughness. Since then, I've seen so many examples of the grit deer really have. And it comes in many forms. But one of the most obvious is how often they have significant but healed over wounds on them. A good buddy of mine shot a buck in southern Minnesota with his muzzleloader in December. That buck, it was nice deer, had a normal four-point side on one side, but also kind of a smaller, droopier-looking, messed-up side. And Ben said it looked like someone had shot the buck with a shotgun slug the year before, because although it was healed up, he said the scar tissue and the damage to the shoulder was intense. Now, that same buck also had several tine wounds in his rear quarter that were full of pus. I don't know which injury I'd pick, the shotgun blast to the shoulder or some blunt tines digging into your glutes. 
but neither is all that appealing. If you hunt in a high-pressure area, you have probably shot a few deer with bullets or broadheads in them. I have. I've shot deer with muzzleloader bullets in their legs and in their back straps. I've shot a buck one time in Minnesota that had an enormous but old wound on his back. I don't know if he got hit by a grain truck or what, but a whole section of his back dipped down lower than the rest. Can you imagine? The amount of deer out there making a go of it on three legs is pretty incredible too. If some random blaze orange clad asshole and his buddies walked through my living room in a line and shot off one of my legs when I tried to get away, I think I'd lay right there in my yard and beg for a merciful second shot. Deer are just tough. I already told this story, so I won't give it the full details here, but I shot a buck through the ribs in Texas one time. When that buck came back to the feeder two days later, I shot him again, thankfully better that time. And what was crazy is I got to see how much that original wound had healed up in two days. It was incredible. The skin had fused back together. And while it would bleed a little bit when I pushed on the wound, it wasn't like the kind of wound you'd expect from a fixed blade broadhead going right through your chest. Now imagine that. Imagine what it would be like to have an arrow go through your ribs magically miss all the good stuff that keeps you out there in the mesquite and then being damn near fully healed a few days later they're truly incredible and i think it's probably a little bit of genetic hardwiring and a little bit that they don't have pity parties like we do i've interviewed quite a few veterinarians in my life over the years because i used to produce and host a podcast all about sporting dogs and for like a decade i wrote the retriever health column for wildfowl magazine and while I got a crash course in dog health through those years, one thing that stuck with me was all of the injuries to dogs that I heard about from veterinarians. One fellow who's a friend of mine named Ira McCauley has his own clinic down in Missouri. I asked him what the most gnarly dog injuries are that he sees, thinking he'd talk about dogs getting shot or busting their legs up or something. But he said they all involved catfishing. Now, as most of you know, Dogs don't discriminate a whole lot on what they'll put in their mouths, just like toddlers. Now think about using cut-up hot dogs, or a glob of chicken liver, or a bunch of stink bait for catfish. If you think a Labrador Retriever isn't going to gobble that shit up the way you would if you stumbled into an edible and an hour later someone set down some Reese's peanut butter cups in front of you, you're wrong. The problem with eating catfish bait is that it's often stuck to a treble hook which is tied to some pretty stout line. Iris said that he sees dogs more often than you'd imagine with a treble hook lodged in their esophagus or deeper into their stomach. Depending on where, they either have to go in through the throat or cut a new hole into the side of the dog to work on that hook. He then went on to say that you wouldn't believe how fast they heal from that. And he's right, I wouldn't. But dogs don't feel sorry for themselves. They have emotions, just like I'm sure deer do, but they don't have the luxury or hell, probably the burden of being able to think of themselves in main character mode like we do. Your average lab isn't thinking about how sad it is he's missing out on a play date with another dog or how he has a big week at work and now he's hobbling around on crutches or about how his stupid boss is always making him work late and never appreciates him and only really cares about the other whitetail guys on the team who have better mustaches but questionable hunting skills. Dogs don't have that problem. 
and neither do deer. They live in the moment and they heed that call, that deep in the bones call that says, you will see another sunrise. You will do what it takes to live, period, end stop, done and done, my friends. That's one of the many, many things that makes dogs so damn cool and deer so damn special. It's also something you can use to be a better hunter on a couple of different fronts. The first is the pure survival instinct. As I mentioned, if you butcher your own deer and you hunt where other people hunt, you're going to start to see some old wounds on your deer. Imagine how many encounters a deer probably goes through in its life to suffer bullet or arrow wounds and survive. That is a deer that isn't going to risk its life unnecessarily. Think about it from this perspective. Let's say you had someone from some quaint little town in Iowa where everybody knows everyone and the last murder happened in 1967 when the postman got caught delivering more than the mail to some dude's wife and the old rabbit shotgun came out and for a while the mail was a little late and it was the talk of the county. Take that person and put them in like the south side of Chicago on the 4th of July when it's 100 degrees out. Maybe the sun's setting. That world's going to be different for them. They'll be like a year and a half old buck out there wandering around at noon during the rut on public land. There's going to be different survival instincts. Maybe not that sharp. Might get into some trouble. Now take someone who has grown up in that city environment. Imagine how different they would travel. How they'd look at the world from a different view. Imagine the difference in decision making. Now imagine that in the deer world... If you'd be lucky to live for five years, and during three months of those five years, every year, someone tried to kill you every day, and worse yet, got close enough to wound you a time or two. How risky do you think you'd be after that? You probably wouldn't tolerate too many close encounters with humans unless you were positive you had as many advantages as possible. If you're bedded in a deadfall and see or hear a hunter walking below you, it's time for concern. But the advantage is yours, and you know it. Now, if you get up to browse and head toward the nearest alfalfa field and suddenly catch movement out of your peripheral vision, then you see some dude in a tree drawing his bow. You're going to realize quickly you gave up your advantage, and now it's danger time. Those experiences are going to leave a mark. Now, the second part of this ties into something I've said a billion times, but I'll say it again. We condition the deer to our danger. Just think about the average deer on an average hunting property that contains some agriculture. Where are those deer that live there most likely to encounter a hunter? Where are they most likely to get shot at? Where are they most likely to see a human or smell where a human has been? Where are they most likely to spot a brand new trail camera on a tree? Where are they most likely to bump into what they perceive as a concentration of danger? And then when is it most dangerous? Is it at midnight or 20 minutes before dark? What would most of the deer have to do to avoid that danger on any given day during the hunting season? Think about it. And now you know that. So what do you do? Hunt like everyone else? Nope, nope, nope. It pays to hunt deer that get hunted for this very reason. You learn how tough they are and how they get to be so tough. 
Now, I'm not saying don't hunt private land or don't go hunt where others don't or can't because that would be stupid. And I don't want to sound any more stupid than I already do on any given day. I'm just saying it's a good idea to think about things from the deer's perspective and give credit where that credit is due. Just like I said a couple of weeks ago when I talked about how we almost always sell the act of shooting a doe so short because in some situations it can be incredibly easy. In others, though, it can be just as hard as killing a mature buck. That's because in some situations, those does and those bucks are subjected to real danger on a daily basis, or at least in a concentrated fashion for like 90 days a year. That's a lot of looking out for yourself and enough close calls to really, really leave a mark. And it's a great way to create the kind of deer that can not only shrug off, I don't know, a non-lethal hit from a rifle or a bow, but that will also structure the daylight hours of their life to stay away from those rifle-toting and bow-carrying threats. I honestly love that about them. Well, most of the time. I don't love it when I'm getting my ass kicked for weeks by the deer, and I know part of the reason they keep winning and I keep losing is because they've got a better plan to survive than I have a better plan to make them not survive. But that's good, too. Those tough bucks and those does out there that are kicking my ass and maybe yours, they've earned it. They've dropped at the sound of a bow going off to only suffer a superficial wound to the back straps versus a couple of deflated lungs. They've zigged and zagged at the right time as the orange-clad drivers on the side of the bluff pushed their way through the brush and nearly sent them into the laps of the posters, who likely shot offhand with a spray-and-pray mentality that saved the deer and taught them some real important lessons. And I guess lastly, I want to sign off with this. If you recognize how tough deer are, whether just by hunting and shooting enough of them or getting in on every butcher job you can, it really makes you appreciate shot selection and gear choice. Now, I'm not going to get into that because I've covered it a lot, but when you respect an animal that doesn't die easy, it's a powerful motivator to do things right, stack the odds in your favor, to practice the way you should, to tune your bow, choose the right arrows that don't have to be 700 grains of bad Cape Buffalo medicine, but should fly real straight and deliver enough energy on target to take a questionable hit and make it lethal, or to go through the range and burn through an extra box of shells even when those shells cost twice as much as they did, I don't know, two years ago, and you need nearly a master degree in navigating the dark web to find them. To do our part, I guess, is what I'm saying. It really drives that home when you start to understand how tough deer are and how hard they will fight to survive. It puts a little extra onus on us to be better and to appreciate the times when it all comes together and we do our job and we watch those lights go out in five or ten seconds. The whole thing is pretty cool, and it's made possible by the whitetails who are just made to live. That's it. Next week, I'm going to have some fun on the show, and I'm going to talk about always and never. I've touched on that topic a few times, but I've never done a deep dive into it, so that's what I'm going to do, because always and never beliefs really make us make some bad decisions out there in the field. That's it for this show, my whitetail-loving friends. I'm Tony Peterson, and this has been the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. As always, thank you so much for your support. And if you think you need a little bit more of a whitetail fix, feel free to check out my latest articles on themediator.com slash wired. If you read all those, don't fret, because we drop several new pieces each week from some of the best whitetail hunters in the country. 
outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.